sermon series is called Ask Anything, and it's based on your questions about Christianity and the Bible. And for me, it's been a great opportunity for us to, to really think Christianly, not just about faith, but about all of life. Um, the gospel is not just a private thing between me and God. It speaks to every corner, every crevice of our lives. Um, God doesn't just want to save your soul. He wants to renew and restore every single part of his creation. It all matters to him. So here's today's question. Is Jesus a Republican or a Democrat? I love this question. No, I'm going to spare you the tension. The answer is no. He's neither. Uh, There are two ways that Christians can miss the boat when it comes to connecting faith and politics. One way is to make Christianity all about politics. And we see this sometimes, don't we? Christians who are always fighting culture wars, always trying to take America back. And a lot of it ends up sounding very mean-spirited and antagonistic, not to mention self-serving. Consider this quote from a man named Brandon. Years ago, when I was looking at Christianity from the inside, it seemed like a movement bursting with energy to spread good news to people. Looking at it from the outside today, this message seems to have been lost in exchange for an aggressive political strategy that demonizes segments of society. Do you see that too? I do. Nowadays, there are lots of people, both outside and inside of the church, that have become deeply frustrated and even disillusioned by American Christianity's obsession with power. The other way to miss the boat is to assume that Christianity and politics have nothing to do with each other, and therefore Christians are free to engage politically however we want or to disengage completely. This is equally wrong. The church should never ally itself with a political party or any human ideology for that matter, but that does not mean that the gospel doesn't have political ramifications. At our best moments, the church has fought valiantly for the abolition of slavery, for women's suffrage, civil rights, child labor laws, equal pay for equal work, the humane treatment of prisoners. And Christians have fought valiantly against climate change and world hunger and human trafficking and apartheid, caste systems, imperialism, discrimination and torture. Christians have a responsibility to speak up and to take action on behalf of the oppressed. And to be silent is to be complicit. We can't just beg out. The earliest Christian confession was that Jesus is Lord. And I know that that sounds like a religious statement, but it's actually a political statement. Because in the Greco-Roman world, if Jesus is Lord, then Caesar is not. So the first Christians were, in fact, called to pray for and to submit to their governing authorities, but they knew that their ultimate loyalty, their ultimate allegiance was to Jesus. So even today, to call Jesus king is to say that our ultimate hope lies not in a politician or a party or a platform, but in Jesus. Sadly, however, many Christians see the world primarily not through the lens of the gospel, but through the lens of their political ideology, which is really dangerous, especially when the two, their politics and their faith, become fused or 
confused. So here's our question. How can we, as followers of Jesus, remain politically engaged without becoming politically co-opted or spiritually compromised? How might the confession, Jesus is Lord, impact our political vision and our political engagement? This morning, we're going to talk about four tendencies of political parties that Christians must avoid. Two questions to help us assess if Jesus is sovereign over our politics or vice versa. And then finally, six ways Christians can engage in politics that honor Jesus and honor our neighbors. So that's where we're going Here we go. Let's talk about some tendencies of political parties that Christians must avoid. The first is the assumption that God is on our side. And both the right and the left are guilty of this, so they might use different words. There's this wonderful scene in the book of Joshua. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? So he's looking at an angel, right? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Isn't this a great scene? I love this exchange. God is wholly other. He is wild. He is free. He cannot be domesticated or co-opted. He doesn't exist to serve our agenda. He's not a respecter of parties or sides. The question is never, is God on our side? The question is, am I on God's side? Second tendency that we want to avoid is the tendency to provide overly simplistic explanations for what's wrong with the world. This is really important. If you are a conservative person, and you ask, if you ask a conservative person, what's wrong with the world? They will probably say something to the effect of, well, you know, Individuals make unwise, harmful decisions. They need to experience a change of heart, a change of priorities. Sometimes government bureaucracies uh, get in the way of an individual's freedoms. And so what we need is more freedom and more responsible behavior. But if you were to ask someone on the left the same question, they would probably, probably say something like, well, you know, there are unjust social structures that oppress people. And prevent them from flourishing and and then greed runs amok and power is misused and and people lack access and opportunity. And so what's needed are strong laws and strong cultural institutions that will lift up and protect the vulnerable and keep greed and oppression in check. Ever since the recent mass shootings, I've heard people on the right say, you know, this isn't going to get better until we deal with our mental illness pandemic and and our video game addiction. And and this is what happens when a country turns its back on God. And I've heard people on the left say, you know, we need better systems for keeping guns out of the wrong people's hands and keeping certain guns out of circulation completely. What do you think is wrong with the world? Is it broken people or broken systems? Do we need better hearts or better laws? Well, listen to what the prophet Micah says. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with your God. See, according to Micah, we need mercy and justice because our hearts and our systems are both broken. 
More than that, we need humility so that we don't end up maligning and mistreating those who see the world differently than we do. Viewing the world, viewing complex social problems through the lens of the gospel frees us from the tendency to oversimplify and to see only one side of a problem. Followers of Jesus who are not bound to a human political ideology are free to consider the complexity and the nuances of a problem in ways that lead to more robust and holistic solutions. Another tendency of political parties that we must avoid is the tendency to assign blame. In our cultural moment, political parties function like tribes. They offer people an identity, an experience of belonging. One of the things that parties do to galvanize their tribe is to externalize problems, to absolve themselves of responsibility and assign blame elsewhere. And so everything becomes us versus them. So if I ask a Trump supporter who's to blame for America's problems, they might say, well, immigrants who commit crime and deplete our resources and steal our jobs. And so we need to ban Muslims and build a a big wall on the southern border and close the door to refugees and immigrants, and then America will be great again. And if I ask a more traditional conservative, conservative, they might say, well, it's the 47% who don't pay taxes. And it's the academy, it's the elite, it's, it's, you know, the elite are out of touch with with the struggles of ordinary Americans. That's what's wrong with our country. If I ask someone on the left who's to blame for our problems, they might say, well, it's the rich, it's white men, it's corporations, it's Wall Street, it's nationalists, it's the gun lobby, it's religious fundamentalists. We need to take Washington back from these people, from these extremists, before they destroy the very fabric of our society. See, both sides love to assign blame. And it's easy, if we're not careful, to get caught up in it. Because if our problems are someone else's fault, then we must be right. And it gives us a sense of moral indignation and and self-righteousness if we're constantly blaming other people. There's a scene in the Gospel of Luke where the crowds are talking with Jesus about uh, some current events. The Romans had just marched into the temple and murdered some Jewish worshipers in cold blood. And around the same time, a tower in a nearby city had fallen and crushed some civilians who were in the wrong place at the wrong time. And the crowds wanted to know, why did these particular individuals die? Had they committed some horrible sin that God was judging them for? Did they have it coming to them? And Jesus says, absolutely not. But unless you repent, you too will perish. In other words, Jesus is saying to them, stop stop assigning blame. You worry about you. Are you living in right relationship with God and your neighbor? See, Jesus knows that the reason we go looking for scapegoats is to avoid responsibility. The reason that we pin our anger on other people is because deep down inside, we're desperately insecure about our own failings and weaknesses, and so we're looking for a way to externalize them. But it's not our job to assign blame. It's our job to search our own hearts and to live in right relationship with God and our neighbors. A fourth tendency of political parties is to demonize or try to do away with one's enemies. Often, enemy hate is the drumbeat of a campaign. You've heard it. Round them up and send them home. Keep them out. Lock her up. Or perhaps liar, 
bigot, extremist, impeach. Right? And the networks love this. They gobble it up because for some reason, outrage and, and hate sends their ratings through the roof, which says a lot about the human condition. There's another scene in Luke's gospel. Jesus and his disciples are walking through Samaria. They're looking for a place to stay. Now, Jews and Samaritans hated each other. They had for hundreds of years. The disciples were probably more than just a little bit miffed that Jesus even included Samaria on their travel itinerary. But there they were. And the first village they go into rejects them. No, you can't stay here. Absolutely not. And so two of the disciples asked Jesus, hey, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and roast these people like marshmallows? In other words, can't we just get rid of these half-breeds? They don't even deserve to live. And Jesus turns and he rebukes them and they go and try at another village. You know, Israel was, was pretty fragmented in Jesus' day. There were all these different groups within Judaism. Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, Zealots. And they all had a different vision of what would make Israel great again. And they all had enemies that they avoided or condemned or tried to, some, in some cases, tried to kill. But Jesus refused to get sucked into that political dynamic. Instead, Jesus just kept day after day crossing the road to his enemies. He went to Samaria more than once. He spent time with the poor. He hobnobbed with prostitutes and tax collectors and Roman soldiers and every kind of outcast he could find. See, Christians are people who love rather than look down on and exclude their enemies. Christians are people who cross the road and tear down walls and make peace. All right, let me give you two questions. And these questions are designed um, to help you to assess whether Jesus dictates your politics or your politics dictate how you view and follow Jesus. Okay, two questions. First one I'm going to break down. Here's the first question. Do I have the freedom to think for myself? Do I have the freedom to think for myself? The Apostle Paul writes, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. And then elsewhere he writes, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So freedom is kind of a big deal in the Christian life. Do you have the freedom to think for yourself? Do you have the freedom, here's one wrinkle, to criticize politicians and their policies including and especially those on the same side of the aisle as you. Jesus did. Jesus called Herod a fox. That didn't mean he thought he was good looking. Foxes were considered unclean. This was Jesus' way of saying, look, Herod pretends to be pious. He pretends to be a person of faith and integrity to try to endear his people to him, but it's all a disguise. Jesus called the Jewish opinion leaders of his day a brood of vipers and whitewashed tombs. He looked them in the eye and said, you devour the very people you're supposed to be protecting. And you look great on the outside, but inside you're dead. And I hear Christians say all the time, you know, we should only pray for politicians. We should never criticize them. Says who? 
Certainly not Jesus. Jesus never tells us to turn our brains off and become lemmings. He says, watch out for false prophets. They come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. That's Jesus saying, keep your guards up. Don't be duped. Don't be fooled by the, by the whiteness of their teeth or the charm of their words. Look for character. Look for fruit. Keep your leaders accountable. Don't let them pull the wool over your eyes. Do you have the freedom to say, I voted for this person, but I think they're wrong on this issue. Or I like this person's ideas, but character and integrity and civility are important to me. And this person doesn't demonstrate those things with any consistency at all, and I just can't support them. Do you have the freedom to say that? Here's a test. I'm not going to pull any punches this morning. You ready for this one? Bill Clinton had an affair in the White House. Donald Trump paid hush money to a porn star to cover up an affair he had right after his youngest child was born. If you crucified one of those men and made excuses for or defended the other, then you might say it's about character and integrity and family values, but the reality is it's just about power. And we wonder why millions of Americans are running as fast as they can away from organized religion, because at the end of the day, it sure does look like we're just another voting block, just another niche trying to protect our interests. Just another tribe that's obsessed with power. And it's a darn good thing Jesus rose from the dead because with all this going on, I think he'd be rolling in his grave. Cultural critic Alan Noble says, political affiliation makes us feel like, we're, like we belong to a tribe. Like we have a place, like we're making a difference. The problem is, when you tie your identity to a political movement or to a politician, and that movement or that politician fails you, you don't have the freedom to criticize them because it's like criticizing or betraying yourself. That's dangerous. Are you free? Do you have the freedom to criticize politicians, even and especially those in your own party? Have you built your identity around your political tribe or around Jesus? Here's another freedom test. Do you have the freedom to affirm politicians and policies on the other side of the aisle? Can you be humble about your own weaknesses and appreciative of others' contributions? Can you celebrate the positive contributions of those that you might otherwise strongly disagree with? One of the most insidious dangers of partisan politics is what one British sociologist calls bundling. Let me explain this. Bundling is the idea that in order to belong to a certain party, I have to buy into the entire platform. But if I'm forced to agree with everything my party says, then I'm no longer thinking for myself. Someone else is dictating my core beliefs and values. Can you sift? Can you take part of the package and leave part of the package? The theologian Brian McLaren frames this all really well. This is a long quote, but it's worth it. He says, when Republicans emphasize the need for individual freedom with a corresponding need for individual moral and social responsibility, 
they are resonating with Jesus' teaching and example. But when they tell half-truths or stir up racial fears and animosities or underestimate systemic injustice, when they're careless towards the environment or are hawks about war and killing and show a bias towards the rich, not so much. When Democrats emphasize the need to care for our neighbor, especially those who are most vulnerable, with a corresponding need for fiscal oversight, they are resonating with Jesus' teaching and example. But when they complain about Republican mistakes without proposing or promoting creative solutions, when they underestimate the dangers of debt, when they provide a safety net for the poor, but don't do enough to empower them towards self-sufficiency, when they demonize and exclude religious perspectives or when they fail to protect the unborn, not so much. When libertarians warn of the dangers of oppressive and unchecked power, when they expose the foolishness of entering wars without counting the costs, when they magnify the importance of individual freedom and dignity, they resonate with the teachings and example of Jesus. But when they underestimate the need to hold corporations accountable, when they trust unregulated markets to bring about justice and foster compassion, and when they are naive about systemic injustice and its effects on the disenfranchised, not so much. And then McLaren concludes, he says, all of our parties have strengths and weaknesses. But one must never subcontract out one's own conscience to a party's ideology. And one must not so emphasize the weaknesses of other parties that one becomes blind to the weaknesses in one's own. It's a good word. It's a good word. Do you have the freedom to part ways with your party? To step outside of your camp? to be self-critical, to say, I resonate with this, but I disagree with that. One more freedom question. Do you have the freedom to disagree with your brother or sister in Christ without being disagreeable, without looking down on them? Tim Keller tells a story about a man from Mississippi who was a conservative Republican and a traditional Presbyterian. On a visit to the Scottish Highlands, he was... uh, very pleased to find that the churches there were as strict and as orthodox as he had hoped. The Sabbath was kept. Everyone was memorizing the catechism, memorizing scripture. But then one day he discovered that these Scottish Christian friends of his that he admired so much, in his view, were socialists. Their understanding of government economic policy and the state's responsibilities was, to his mind, very left-wing, and yet they were also grounded in their Christian convictions. So this man returned to the United States not more politically liberal, but in his words, humbled and chastened because he realized that thoughtful Christians, all trying to obey God's call, could reasonably appear at different places on the political spectrum. Do you believe that? The fact is, most political ideas are about practical wisdom, not biblical command. For every thou shall not that a person might want to legislate, there are dozens of, what's the best way to do this? What's the best way to do that? For instance, you know, the Bible clearly teaches that the poor should be honored and cared for. But it doesn't say how we should do that or what role exactly the government should play. Likewise, the Bible says we should welcome the stranger and care for the foreigner. But it doesn't say how many of the world's 40 million refugees America should receive every year. 
Christians are free to disagree about how to best care for the poor and how to best respond to the global refugee crisis. And hopefully, we have the humility to listen to and learn from each other as we discuss these things. But if we find ourselves constantly looking down on our brothers and sisters because of their differing political convictions, then it might be fair to say that Jesus is at best our second highest allegiance. Can you disagree with your brother and sister in Christ without being disagreeable, without questioning their faith or their sanity? All right, second question. Ready? Who do my politics serve? Who do my politics serve? Often, you know, we choose our politics based on what serves us, based on what serves our tribe. But Jesus taught us to deny ourselves, not promote ourselves. Philippians 2 says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Hmm. Christian political vision must center on the common good. What platform creates the most good for the most people? A Christian political vision polarizes, uh, prioritizes caring for the least of these, those who are the most vulnerable. According to Jesus, God has special concern for the poor, the handicapped, the prisoner, and the oppressed. And whatever we do for the hungry, the thirsty, the sick, and the naked and in prison, we do for him. Do our politics reflect these priorities? Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. When the early church reflected on Jesus' life, they recognized that he did not consider equality with God something to cling to, but that he set aside his privilege and became a slave in order to focus on the needs of others. Jesus disadvantaged himself in order to advantage others. Do we? Who do your politics serve? You or your neighbor? Your tribe? Or those that the world neglects? All right, let's get really practical. How can I be engaged politically in ways that honor Jesus and honor my neighbor? And one of the reasons that this can be a tricky question to answer is that, you know, when the New Testament was written, uh, it was written in an empire, right? Not a democratic republic. So it's not, you know, it's, it's kind of apples and oranges. The early church had no political power. Most of the first Christians weren't even considered citizens. So it makes sense that the command to the early church was to endure their political situation and get busy at the grassroots level. That They really had no other option. But for us, our command is not so much to endure, but to engage. Because we have a voice, right? We have varying degrees of power and influence in our society, which means we have a responsibility not to seek power for ourselves, but to love and to serve our neighbor and to seek their good. Alan Noble says, part of loving our neighbor means we can't just say, politics are such a mess, right? It's just so depressing. That's not an option for us. If you are an American citizen, you don't just get to relax and follow, follow orders. You, you've got to pay attention to what's going on. You have an obligation to act. So with that in mind, here, here are some ways that, that we can engage politically in ways that honor Jesus and honor our neighbors. First is to be informed. We really need to know what's going on in the world and the issues that are affecting people, especially in our own communities. 
Um, but we need to choose our sources carefully, right? And we need to avoid those sources that specialize in stoking outrage and fear and reinforcing tribal loyalties, right? And I think that long-form journalism that draws on multiple perspectives is best. But even more than tuning into the news, we need to cross the road. There's a Haitian proverb that says, we, are, we see from where we stand. And sometimes when we move our feet, we see things differently. Sometimes issues that seem really clear-cut in the suburbs suddenly don't look the same in the inner city. Sometimes convictions that are just a slam dunk when you're the majority seem a lot more tenuous when you're a minority. You know, our second night in Camden, New Jersey, we went for a walk down by the waterfront. It was beautiful. I mean, it was a brand new, big, wide, clean, beautiful river walk, tall skyscrapers, green spaces, a a gorgeous uh, uh, view of the, the Philadelphia skyline at night. While we were out there, we ran into Tony, who was one of the camp directors at Urban Promise. Tony grew up in Camden. He lived just a a few blocks away from the waterfront. And we asked Tony, well, what do you think of all all these changes to the waterfront? You know, our white suburban impulse was to say, this is really beautiful. This must be really good for Camden. But then Tony said, yeah, it is beautiful. But who does it benefit? No one around here. You know, for years, the city has been putting pressure on lifelong residents of Camden to sell their homes at a fraction of what they're worth. And then they started saying, you need to fix the sidewalk in front of your house, and if you don't, we're going to fine you $500 a month indefinitely. And then they said, you have to paint the, front, the outside of your houses, and if you don't, we're going to fine you $500 a month indefinitely. And these businesses that have all built up over here, You know why they came here? Because the city gave them a 30-year tax break. So the city doesn't even benefit financially from all these corporations who've taken over our most valuable real estate. And so when the 30-year tax break ends, who do you think, what do you think they're going to do? They're going to leave. And then to attract someone new, they're going to give them another 30-year tax break. Now, we never would have seen that side of the waterfront if we didn't cross the road to Tony. We didn't listen to a Puerto Rican townie who's looking out for his neighbors who are about to be pushed out to God knows where. Third thing we can do is vote. And when you vote, the key question cannot be, does it have a D or an R next to its name? The key questions have to be, who will this person help? How much power does this person have to affect actual change? Has this person demonstrated an ability to work across the aisle? Does this person have integrity? Do they have a vision for the common good? Or is their vision only meant to cater to their base? Vote. Get to work. Hit the streets. Be the change you want to see in the world. Be part of the answer to your prayer. Let the kingdom of God come on earth as it is in heaven. Invest as much energy as you can into serving, empowering, and advocating for those who lack access to power and opportunity, especially widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. Conservatives love to say government is a terrible solution to the world's problems. Fine, then be part of the solution. And liberals love to say, hey, the poor are important. Fine, do something about it other than paying your taxes. 
Get your hands dirty. Make it personal. Get to work. Number five, model civility. Our culture desperately needs civil people. And sadly, American Christians have failed to model civility, at least consistently. Let's be people who know how to listen well, who can take on the perspective of others, who know how to de-escalate tensions, who know how to build community and foster cooperation and seek common ground and common cause. We can do this. And then finally, join with other believers to create a counterculture for the common good. Followers of Jesus do not march to the beat of the world's drum. We do not fit neatly into the two-party system. And we reject the path of manipulating the truth and abusing power. Instead, we choose the path that Jesus took, which is the path of downward mobility, of denying ourselves daily, even to the point of disadvantaging ourselves so that we can lift up others. We strive to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. We seek the most good for the most people, and we carry an extra special concern for the weakest and most vulnerable members of society. Leslie Newbegin says it well, local congregations must renounce an introverted concern for their own life and recognize that they exist for the sake of those who are not members as a sign, an instrument, a foretaste of God's redeeming grace for the whole life of society. We may be different from our neighbors, but we still strive to be the kind of neighbors that everybody wants. And if we succeed, then Christians will become known not for being too political or for being obsessed with power, or for seeking their own self-interest, but for our willingness to lay down our lives for others, like Jesus did. And that will be for Jesus' glory and our neighbor's good.